as I was praying, I was thinking about the testimony of a young lady in our church who was telling us just um, Sunday afternoon that she was speaking to a relative of hers um, last year sometime, and she said, uh, and this relative was a new believer, and she said, I've never known a guy like that. I've never met a guy like that. And that's just a testament to the power of um, uh, a, a genuine Christian testimony of humility, kindness, one who's submitting his heart and genuinely seeking to mortify his flesh. And uh, the powerful testimony that had on um, whether she was a new believer or not yet saved at the time, it made a very powerful impact. And I was just struck by that and encouraged to know that what makes an impression on people uh, is not to be like the world in pride and, um, you know, put downs and this era of, of social media that sometimes uh, values um, clever witticisms and, and things like that. This morning, I want to consider one verse in the scriptures, and uh, as we do that, what we'll do is we'll look at a number of other related passages and consider some of the implications. This is a huge, huge topic in scripture that we're very familiar with, and as we, as we consider the issue of pride this morning, I want to just think through what the scripture says and, and how we think about it. Uh, some biblical words that we throw around, we, we don't give much thought sometimes to them. And it's, it's funny, I had here in my notes an example of the word forever. And uh, just last night, uh, one of my young daughters was setting the table and I was in the kitchen with my wife getting things ready. And she said, my young daughter said to her sister, ah, it's taking forever to set the table. And I don't know how that could be or what was going on, but just right there was an example of, of someone saying forever. And we mean a very little time, forever. Another example, and really getting to our passage and topic this morning, is this word abomination. Abomination. This, this is a word for sin in the scriptures that's not used a lot of times. There's a lot of words for sin in the scripture. The abomination is one of them, and that's another word that we don't, we, we, we may use rather lightly uh, in reference to things we have, don't like, a preference kind of thing, like we might call blue cheese an abomination. But when we consider what Scripture says, the Scripture really reserves these particular sins, um, re- reserves that term for particular sins, of this thing that's utterly abhorred by God. God rejects all sin. There is no darkness in him, no, none whatsoever. And Psalm 5 makes that very, very clear. But these things that are abhorred, when God calls something an abomination, he's not making an overstatement. So when you hear that word and when you use that word, what what does it conjure? What do you think of? One passage, and we'll, we'll get to our main text in a moment, but in Leviticus 18, 20 through 30, it refers to adultery as an abomination, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality. These are abominations, according to Leviticus 18. And then 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 24, refers to cultic prostitution as an abomination. These sins are abominations, homosexuality, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, cultic prostitution. Let's look at one passage as we get to our text in the book of Proverbs this morning. We'll be in Proverbs. Take a look at Proverbs 6, starting in verse 16. We'll see a few other things that Solomon notes as abominations. Proverbs 6, starting in verse 16. What Solomon will do as we come through Leviticus and, um, of course, reading in the book of Kings and you come to Proverbs, and Solomon is going to tighten it down even more and get more direct in a couple of ways. One, he's going to mention some sins that are an abomination to the Lord that we're not as naturally repulsed by, number one. And number two, he's also going to make reference to these things, not just the sin, but even in some cases, the, the person who commits the sin. 
Notice in Proverbs 6, starting in verse 16, he says, There are six things which the Lord hates. That is to say, uh, he rejects and despises in that sense. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. These are abominations to the Lord, according to Proverbs 6. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, murderous hands, planning evil, feast that, uh, excuse me, feet that race to do evil, a lying liar and a divisive person. From bestiality to lying to divisiveness. But our text today may even strike a little closer to home. It's a conveniently overlooked abomination. It's in chapter 16 of Proverbs, and we'll be in verse 5. This is the primary text this morning we'll come back to a number of times, and I want to unpack this passage and then look at some others related to it. Read with me Proverbs 16.5. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Many of the Proverbs have two basic parts, and this is what we see in verse 5 this morning. Two basic parts, and we're going to look at it in the first part, 5a, and the second part of verse 5. And the first part is what I'll just call the reality, the reality, and the second part we'll see the result, the reality. The text begins in the original abomination or an abomination to the Lord. It's, it's emphatic. This is this not often used word for sin. When you hear it in the original or when you even read it here in the, in the translation, it strikes you and it kicks off the verse. An abomination to Yahweh. This is something that's altogether wrong. The extent of its Corruption, twistedness, perversion is, is inconceivable. And the issue here is not that it's vile in our minds or vile in our perception, but it's vile to Yahweh. An abomination to Yahweh. Now, something that's abominable to the Lord may not appear to be abominable to people. In fact, it may be highly sought after. Highly desired. Luke 16, 15, Jesus says, That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And what is called an abomination to the Lord is, again, often admired, extolled, retweeted, imitated among us. May it not be of the believer, but even the believer Asaph, when he said in Psalm 73, verse 3, he said at one point in his life, I was envious of the arrogant. That category of people he described, obviously he went on to describe other sins in their lives, but he classified them as arrogant people. The godly man Asaph, who wrote scripture, said, in my flesh, there, there was this time when I became envious of arrogant people. We should be on high alert that we would be envious of worldly thinking, worldly means, worldly um, ways of going about accomplishing selfish desires in that way. Now, who, who is an abomination according to this verse? An abomination to the Lord um, is everyone, literally, all those who are proud in heart. Something you can't escape, this language of totality in verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart. The language is exhaustive. It doesn't specify someone's posture, someone's station in life. It doesn't specify whether he's wearing a suit behind a lectern. It doesn't specify whether he's wearing a jumpsuit standing behind bars. It doesn't specify anything about this person other than that his heart 
is proud. Is he referring to a believer or an unbeliever? Well, categorically, when you read Proverbs, you see the fool and the one guy who's, if it's possible, to be worse than a fool, the scoffer. Categorically, that's not a believer, but we know how easy and quick it is for our minds to get back into the ruts of the flesh and think foolishly, reason foolishly, act foolishly, which is all about self. So a believer is in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're not um, going to be rejected by God. You're declared righteous, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and for unbelievers, implicit in this verse is the call to recognize pride, is to recognize and repent of it, to recognize the incalculable offense one is to the living God and to repent of self-exaltation. What about us then? What about believers? How would we apply this verse? Well, let's think about it this way. Pride is something none of us could say I used to struggle with that. Oh, yeah, when I was an unbeliever, yeah, you know, sure, there was pride in my life, but now, of course not, that's absurd. So believers, then, for us, implicit in this verse is the same thing, a warning for us, the call implicit to recognize where we're proud in heart and to humble our hearts, to humble our hearts before Yahweh. So we can't think, well, that's not me. I mean, look, this is an abomination to the Lord, proud in heart. That's not me. Well, let me just comment on that. What do we do? We come to Scripture where there's a warning that's explicitly stated or a warning that's implicit in the passage. And what do we do? Do we say, well, that can't be referring to believers, so that, that doesn't really speak to me. No. When there are warnings in Scripture, whether they're explicit or implicit, they are, when they are heeded, a means of perseverance. So when you think warning in, pass, in passages of Scripture, you, you should think, I persevere through warning. How else do we persevere? The warnings in passages like this are to be heeded by believers because of the deceptive nature of sin. Lest we fall away from the living God. What does the author of Hebrews do as he's unpacking the Old Testament scriptures and explaining it um, to New Covenant believers with this round of series of warnings? Oh, we must pay much more careful attention to what we've heard. We, we need to look out for one another. So when we heed passages of scripture like this with faith, they are having their intended effect. Namely, our perseverance, because we persevere through warning. We'll come right back to this, but look at Philippians um, chapter 2 for a moment. You can hold your place in Proverbs 16. Philippians 2, verse 12. When we consider some of the covert and deceptive aspects of this particular sin, and we must pay much more careful attention to what we've heard. Philippians 2.12. This is part of what it means, as Paul says here, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to couple our faith with the Word of God so that it, has, it bears fruit in our life. Otherwise, we're the man in James 1 who hears the Word and goes away from the mirror, having looked at our natural face, but not making any change in our will, according to the Scriptures. Look over at Romans 15, verse 4. As you consider looking at an Old Testament passage this morning and, and how does it relate when the warnings are implicit for New Testament believers today? Romans 15, 4. First of all, he says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the 
perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's a profound coupling of concepts there. Paul puts together perseverance of the scriptures and encouragement of the scriptures that we would have hope. And when I read that, I think, huh, what what does that mean, the perseverance of the scriptures? I think I understand um, encouragement from the scriptures. Well, part of this package is this, this grace and truth package that God brings to us in the word so that as we heed scriptures and believe it and um, Allah, 1 Corinthians, when Paul in chapter 10 is warning us over and over about the, uh, the generation that was apostate, that would set off a string of generations that were apostate, that we not fall to idolatry and immorality as they did. Through the perseverance of the scriptures, we would have hope. This passage in Proverbs 16 says this, this, this person, not just pride, verse 15 back in Proverbs 16, verse 5 rather, he doesn't say that the person, um, that, that pride is an abomination, but everyone, all those who are proud in heart. So when I come to that as a believer, then if I see an abomination to the Lord in Scripture, then I want to stay as far away from that as I possibly can. Would, would we dance on the line and be comfortable getting close? What do we even identify? And that becomes part of the difficulty with this particular sin is its blinding nature. How will we know if we're proud? Well, those individuals God puts in our life helps. Spouse helps. Brothers in Christ help. But at the heart level, at the mind level, because this is the realm we're talking about, look at the verse. Everyone who is proud, there's a sort of spatial concept, if you will, or metaphorically spatial concept. The person who is proud, not on display, not in the Twitter sphere, not even in speech, and not even in deed, but that invisible place, that place no one sees, including myself so often, can be oblivious to what's going on in my own heart. Everyone who is proud in heart, this word proud is very often translated high, literally something that's up there. It's translated in context involving a high mountains, high walls, high hills, a high tower, high gates, high tree. So the idea is high of heart. An abomination to the Lord is everyone who is high in heart, high-hearted, you could say, high-hearted. So the idea is basically self-exaltation, pride being essentially, and biblically speaking, self-exaltation. The heart is the inner man. We often say that the heart is the place of our thinking. Jesus would say to people, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Place of our planning, our decision-making, the, the origin of our words, according to Matthew 12. It's all this and more. Your heart is a, in fact, a veritable representative word for your will. Because it summarizes all those thought intentions and priorities, which are all ultimately and always in the service of worship of some kind. Because the ultimate function of the heart is worship. It's its default mode. Worship. Am I going to self-exalt? Am I going to exalt my ideas of glory? Am I going to exalt the one true and living God? So to be high-hearted is to practice self-exaltation, self-worship. Now those words sound dramatic. Like, what have you been doing? Building a big gold statue in your backyard? No, herein lies so much of the danger. Invisible, subtle, 
thought patterns wherein I think myself better than other people, carve out my own comforts and protection in my closest relationships so that I don't die to myself to seek the spiritual best of those around me. Meanwhile, pride is oozing and seething and permeating through my heart intentions. It's an abomination to Yahweh because it's unchristlike. It's in fact antichrist. We'll talk about that in a moment. So much of the danger of pride, the highness of heart, is how easily it can go unidentified. And we even baptize. <laughs> baptize proud notions as some category of good sometimes. It goes on oftentimes without observable expression. And our attitudes oftentimes more so than even words and actions. In fact, um, in Luke 18, verse 11, you know, the man was saying to himself, I, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. And where did that come from? It came from the heart. And whether we say those things or whether we don't say those things, you know, I, when you come across passages, especially in the Old Testament, and the prophets will say things like, you who say X, Y, and Z. And when I read that, I think we don't say those things, but out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the reality is what's in the heart, whether it's uttered or not. The, um, the wavelength, the truth, the thoughts, they're there before they're uttered. And they don't have to be uttered to be there in the heart because they originate in the heart. So we just want to think through some of these dynamics of our heart, this whole realm we're talking about this morning in Proverbs 16.5, an abomination to Yahweh, that same class as bestiality in Scripture. An abomination to Yahweh is everyone who is high in heart, high-hearted. Well, I mentioned one particular danger of sin. It's always related to the heart, but... The heart is something that's largely concealed. The danger of pride is that it can go unidentified without observable expression. It can be sitting in a Sunday morning worship service. An abominable, toxic flow is sort of flowing through sometimes our minds. And we, we've got to be quicker and quicker to identify that and, and kill it. Our heart is also reckless on its own. You, you study uh, you know, the doctrine of sin in Scripture, and sin knows no ultimate satisfaction. Sin knows no end or no limit. On its own, and when I, when I say on its own, I mean not being made new by God, the, the new creation, the, the natural man, the heart on its own is reckless. And on its own, it will barrel headlong to self-destruction because the heart's desires supersede better reason. If desire has made up its mind, it won't give mind to better reason. The only thing that keeps your heart in check that the unregenerate man is law or coercion or its own perceived best interests, which is why mankind desperately needs a new heart, <laughs> which is the gift of the new covenant, new heart. Why are all the high-hearted an abomination to the Lord? An abomination to Yahweh are all who are proud, who are high in heart. Well, first, I'll, I'll walk through a few of these things, few reasons. Why, why is this the case? Well, first and most fundamentally, and, and I've been impressed with this for, for, a, for so many years, this basic fact that God alone is God. It's one of the most basic facts of reality we could possibly know. I know Pastor Jerry and the men have been teaching on this, you know, our view of God and just fundamental truths of who God is, his sovereignty, his power, his holiness, his exclusivity. God alone is God. And I won't go off into a long discussion. Pastor Jerry's been teaching those things, and the prophet Isaiah um, emphasizes those things, non-parel, 
the exclusivity of God. I am God, and apart from me, there is no other. Straightforward, simple statement, but the ramifications are, are un- unending and huge. Pride is abominable to the Lord because it seeks to defy that great reality that there is only one God. When we start connecting the dots, we realize, okay, pride is the soul of sin, and we find that behind all of this, self-exaltation is this grand delusion that flies in the face of the reality that there is one God, the living God, and he alone is exalted. So we find any form of self-exaltation is the pursuit of delusions. God is God, not me. I love that simple statement from Elihu. God is greater than man. And in the context of Job where he says that, it's very significant because things became so ad hominem among Job and um, at that point before Elihu, three of his friends, that progressive descent of their interactions that Elihu comes along and says, guys, God is greater than man. So his power and his purposes are, are beyond this, this petty discussion, what is descended to. God is God and, and not me. I stand here this morning saying something so, so basic, right? And yet we go home and the, the heart suppositions behind the things we say and do betray that fact. I deserve better than Jesus Christ in this interchange. I deserve to be respected right now because after all, it's just, that's just the way it is. The garden lie, you will be like God, is very much with us. So one, God alone is God. Second, why are all the high-hearted and abomination of the Lord? Well, because another aspect to his highness you know, I, I thought about that, jotting that word down, his highness. That's a term we hear in relationship to like monarchs. Well, he is the monarch of monarchs. His highness is an omnipresent highness. What do I mean by that? What does the scripture mean? Well, you can't get away from his majesty. You can't get away from his highness. You can't get away from his living power. He's everywhere. It's, it's a, a basic truth of his omnipresence. I like to think of his omnipresence as everywhere God is here. We say God is everywhere. That's true. Everywhere God is here. So all pride in any form, any time, anywhere rebels against God because his highness is omnipresent. Look at Isaiah, and we'll come back again, but look at Isaiah chapter 3 for a moment. Isaiah 3, verse 8. This is a stunning text. Of course, it comes after a string of indictments as Isaiah is indicting the ungodly, wicked nation and everything that's turned upside down because of their sin and the judgments coming upon them. But Isaiah 3, 8, he says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech... And actions are against Yahweh. Notice the last expression, giving fuller color to speech and actions that are against Yahweh. He says, to rebel against his glorious presence. It's a stunning statement. To rebel against his glorious presence. In the original language, it's the eyes of his glory. To be proud to, according to 3.8 of Isaiah, to have speech and actions that are anti-Yahweh, notice that, is to rebel against the eyes of his glory. It's a sobering and chilling statement. To rebel against the eyes of his glory. Any lofty thought Any proud notion, any proud speculation, we've rebelled against the eyes of his glory. 2 Corinthians 10.5, again, 
I love this. Uh, we ought to turn there together because we ought to just lay our eyes on this. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now, I remember loving this passage when I was newly saved and thinking, that's right, any, any false teaching, anything that's, you know, directly contradicting the gospel in terms of teaching, and that's true, any, anything like that would qualify, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a very all-encompassing statement. It involves anything that's doctrinally against the gospel and everything that's anti-Christ in our heart, everything that's high and lofty in our own minds and hearts. Why are all the high-hearted? Why is high-heartedness you know, let's think about it in terms of us, not those people out there, but high-heartedness in me when that is there. First of all, do I identify it? Do I know when I've got a speculation? Speculation and lofty uh, thought, a lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and a thought that would be rebellious against the eyes of his glory. How do we even identify those? Because we, we may not in our mind capture this string of words that are uttering things in our mind that are blasphemous against God, but no, well, we, we know sometimes when we're carving out our own will. So much of this, again, is our will. And sanctification, um, the plot line of our sanctification is, is largely played out in relationships. And when you're interacting there's that natural battle in our hearts for, I want to get the upper hand. I want to control this. I want to get the better end of the deal. I want to put myself up above the other person. And these things start forming even pre, um, pre-articulation when, when we're just in that mode of, I'm here and you're here and guess who's, who's better? Guess who's smarter? Guess who's better? Guess who's um, really got a handle on things? me. And out of that comes forth these subtle manipulations, the ways that we think, the way that we talk. And one of those reasons high-heartedness is an abomination to Yahweh is because highness of heart is anti-Christ. If we consider, first of all, that passage in Isaiah 3.8, that rebellion is, is against the eyes of his glory when our speech and our actions are against him. Well, it's against Christ in two ways. Think about this. In Christ's first advent, he said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I'm humble in heart. And also in Philippians 2, uh, look there with me. If you're close by there in 2 Corinthians, turn to Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. We're kind of expanding some application and observation about how to, how to put this in practice. Highness of heart is anti-Christ, self-evidently. Look at Philippians 2, 3 and read with me. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, vain conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another. There's a great one another passage. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain how Christ manifested in in the perfect way. Someone wrote a book on Philippians with its backgrounds just a few years ago, and he made this great observation. This text, when we read this profoundly Christological section, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus in verse 5 and following. It is a profoundly Christological text, and he pointed out that this is Christology, and it's in the service of ecclesiology. This is a helpful observation because he doesn't just launch into this theological discourse in a vacuum. He's saying, 
one another <laughs> in verse 3. Your own personal interest in this make my joy complete. This whole context, verse 1, um, any encouragement in Christ and this whole ecclesiological context, look, look to Christ as the paradigm in all of this. So to be high-hearted is an abomination to Yahweh because it's anti-Christ. And even in his second coming, who exalts the Son? The Father exalts the Son. Notice again, in this very text, we have first advent, humility. Second advent, exaltation. Notice in verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him. Wasn't self-exalted. God exalted the Son. Another reason highness of heart is an abomination to the Lord is that man's calculation of glory is fundamentally flawed. And I mentioned this before. Luke sixteen fifteen. Jesus says, in the context of self-righteous individuals and making judgments based on um, self-exaltation in Luke 16, 15, he says, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We live in a time where the pride of man, which God says he will abase, the pride of man, the kind of mic drop, um, I don't even know if there's a good way to describe all of this, if we've got the best terminology yet, but all this stuff that exalts cleverness and sort of put down culture, um, it is, it's an abomination to the Lord. Doesn't build up, doesn't listen carefully. Not coming from love. That was the reality. Look back at 16.5 of Proverbs. The reality is an abomination to the Lord is everyone who is high in heart. High in heart. That's the reality. The second part is the result. Notice with me in the second part of Proverbs 16.5. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. An abomination to Yahweh is everyone who is high in heart. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Notice that word assuredly, it's an adverb in the English. There's not a lot of adverbs in Hebrew. And um, this, this passage is doubly emphatic. There's two ways that this result is emphasized. One of the ways it's emphasized is this idiom. There's an idiom here that's very interesting. And it's literally the, the second part, the result starts off hand to hand. Interesting, but I, I think we already understand what that means. Guaranteed. The word assuredly is, is a great, translate, great way to put that idiom, hand to hand. In other words, count on this. Count on this. Another way it's emphasized is in the verbal form, which we'll, I'll just mention, but count on this. What Solomon is saying is pride is an indication that something is coming. It's an indication Stay really close in Proverbs 16. Just turn the page and we'll look at a couple of passages. Look at Proverbs 18, 12. You're going to see that pride is actually a harbinger. So we should identify and mortify that, run away from that and turn to Christ in humility. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. Okay. So look at the second half of that first half of the verse. Haughty heart of man is positioned somewhere. You come across haughtiness of heart, and that precedes something. Can turn it around, it precedes destruction. Notice the second half of the verse. But humility is before honor. Humility is before honor. Humility is a harbinger. Haughtiness of heart is a harbinger. It's an indication of something that's coming. Back to 16, look at verse 18. There's something that's before destruction. There's something that's before destruction. 
If you believe the movies, you might think that like a mortar whistles and then you know it's, it's, it's coming. But my uncle who was in combat in Vietnam said, that's ridiculous. It blows up before you hear it. It, it hits you before the sound comes. Um, so it doesn't really work that way. However, we, we definitely have a harbinger of something. Proverbs 16, 18. Where there is pride, if the movies were accurate, that's the whistling sound. They're not accurate, but that's the whistling sound. If you hear it, it's already past you. But here, in this case, pride, oh, where, where am I headed where I have pride? I, I'm, on, I'm on the path toward, as a believer, chastisement. I'm on the path toward discipline of the Lord, and he is a loving father to do that for believers. Don't imagine, uh, as we look at these passages, that you know a believer is... is uh, could possibly lose his salvation, but at the same time, we take these passages as implicit warnings. Otherwise, they, they don't benefit us. We have to match faith to these passages. Back up one chapter, look at um, 1533. Likewise, at the end, the beginning there, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor is humility. Before honor is humility. So back to Proverbs 16.5. Hand to hand, he will not go unpunished. Just as humility is the indication of coming honor, pride is the indication of coming destruction. It's a harbinger. He will not go unpunished. You put yourself in a place of opposition with God. You don't want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God. James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If I remember correctly, I don't want to misrepresent or misquote him, but I know that Dr. Zimmick has been asked something like, What's one of the main points of the Bible? And I know he'd be the first person to say, you know, in academic context, people talk about um, what's called a center. Like, what's the one overriding meta-narrative or motif in all the Bible? And, and Dr. Zimmick would say, come on, guys. The Scripture teaches so many things. You can't say there's one center. It teaches a lot of truth. But he has, I've heard him answer a question as to one of the most central teachings of the Bible, and it's James 4, 6. He says, as he says here in James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think he's right on with that. You see that manifest throughout the scriptures. James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud. Do you want divine opposition? We can't even fathom what it is to come up against omnipotent opposition. He has ways of thwarting plans. But no one can say to him, what have you done? No one can thwart his plans and his purposes, Elihu said. No one can thwart them. We think we have something all worked out and then God just sort of puts his hand in there and mixes things up a little bit. How could that have happened? I, I had it all together. Oh, who's in control? Look at Isaiah chapter two. This is one of the most, in my understanding, powerful passages on what God does with pride. Isaiah two, starting in verse 10. There's a lot of text this morning, but I hope that the overall effect is that we go away and we're just, we're more circumspect. We're more sensitive to the power of God, the humility of Christ, his lordship over my life, and examining myself that out of my mouth is coming what's in my heart. Is this to love other people? Is this all about me? Look at Isaiah 2. This is what God thinks of pride. The more theologically we think, the more we say, Amen, Lord. Yes, of course, this is true because you're the only living God. 2.10. 
We'll back up in verse 9. So the common man has been humbled and um, another individual man has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's a sweet, encouraging promise and, a, and an implicit warning. For the Lord of hosts, this term typically in context of his vengeance, his power of a multitude of armies to, to do his bidding, the Lord of hosts will have a day, a day is coming. And in, in that day, everyone who is proud and lofty and everyone who is lifted up so in that day, then, that, that person will be abased. And notice in verse 13, it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Do you have a subtle trust in America's nuclear triad? Oh yeah, we got these sweet stealth like stuff going on. I mean, if something happens, I mean, uh, we probably still have superior. No confidence in the flesh. Trust his purposes. I have to say, when, when we've all lived in the superpower of the world all of our lifetimes, we tend to get a skewed view of what we trust in and what it means. And, and, and frankly, the phobia of becoming number two or three at the hands of another nation, I think, strikes this strange terror into some of our hearts. What, what, what if this country over here and, and this country over here, because we might become number two or three or four in the world. What is that? Consider our context and the particular temptations we might have to trust in man. A few observations, and uh, we'll see. We'll have a few minutes to talk together. A couple of observations. Pride is deceitful. Pride is deceitful. Look at Obadiah with me for just a moment. The first four verses, Obadiah. Obadiah, the first four verses. This is a message to people who are trusting in their own defenses, their own high place of refuge. And we should take this as a warning because the judgment of Edom is in fact a harbinger of the day of the Lord globally. The vision of Obadiah thus says the Lord, God, Concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The, listen carefully. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say, here it is, in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 3. Something did something 
to something. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. What they thought was their highness, their protection, their defense, their strength, God says, it's nothing. From there, I will bring you down. I love the thought, someone, uh, one theologian said, that there's nothing harder for God to do than, than anything else. Nothing is more difficult for God to do anything than anything else. It doesn't matter what it is. Nothing's impossible with him. He's, he's all-powerful. So it's not harder for God to take down a superpower than it is for him to make the sun come up the next day or to um, do anything we think to be a very small thing because accomplishing small feats are, are, are no smaller for God than accomplishing great feats and vice versa. How does our arrogance deceive us? This is really, really significant. And one of the greatest dangers is the way that pride deceives ourselves. We deceive ourselves in pride. How does it deceive us? I'll talk through four of them. And we'll look at a second obligation or observation after that. How does pride deceive us? Well, one, to be high of heart, we've already talked about it in the sense that to be high of heart is to carry on a vain imagination about who is exalted. If I have highness in my heart, then I'm, I'm living in a vain imagination about who is really exalted so that the milieu is already vanity. The milieu is already deception and delusion. Secondly, pride is uh, deceitful, we could say blinding in this sense, in that we don't even perceive it rightly. Um, it's so easy to see in others. One Christian thinker said years ago, he observed, it's so much easier to see pride in other people than it is ourselves. And you know, in, in the closest relationships you have, sometimes the person has to say, don't, don't you see what you're saying? Don't you get it? And you're like, oh, I, you know, it takes, takes me a while to see because I'm, I'm not seeing things clearly if I'm having arrogance or haughtiness in my heart. Proverbs 16, 2 all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. Oh, then I've got to have biblical sight. I've got to have encouragement and help and exhortation from others. I've got to renew my own understanding so that I see myself rightly. It's so plain to see in other people and yet strangely elusive in ourselves. Third, why is pride deceitful? Pride often masquerades as other issues. I'll just go through a few. Shyness, introspection, hurt feelings, defensiveness, self-justification. Pride may even be hiding in feelings of happiness. One Christian thinker said, we, we may be thinking we're godly when really we're just feeling good. We just feel happy. The fourth, and I think this is one of the most serious, pride is like an intoxicant that progressively and often imperceptibly erodes self-restraint. Pride is like an intoxicant that progressively and often imperceptibly erodes self-restraint. I'll go through a few ways that happens. It it opens our mouth more quickly. It removes the rain of our imagination. Asaph had a thing or two to say about that, about the riotous imagination of the wicked. The imagination that's riotous in Psalm 73, and you see similar things in Psalm 10 and Psalm 49. It removes the reins on our imagination so that there could be utter iniquitous chaos in our minds while we look like a civilized citizen inside what's going on there is criminal it strips us of our own sense perception uh, particularly of ourselves and someone who comes through that and they don't humble themselves and get humbled by god and they stiffen their neck under god or rebel against him blatantly as an unbeliever, 
you know what the end of the line is? What, what is the end of that? What is the trajectory, as Pastor Jerry often says? What's the trajectory of that? A guy comes to the, the place and he has made a mushroom cloud over his own life and then asks, how did I ever get here? How did I get to this place? It's the blinding, cauterizing nature of pride. Pride gets us there. It's the gateway sin. It's the soul of sin that will usher you into iniquity unimagined. A high heart will deceive you. And guess what? We wake up every morning and there's our heart again. We got to go do spiritual battle again. As Paul said, we just looked at it in 2 Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not natural, fleshly weapons, but they're divinely powerful why would God equip us with such weaponry? Because the enemy is that stubborn. Keeps getting up. Put it together. I remember Pastor Todd Murray standing right here some years back saying, what does victory look like in the Christian life? I love that. And he was saying, it's not the ticker tape parade. The battle's done. No more battle. That's not Christian victory. And for you, maybe new, newer folk, if you're younger and you didn't hear that good word of wisdom from Pastor Todd, he was talking about the, the discouragement we face sometimes in battle of sin. To wake up and there I am again. I got to go to battle again with the truth in my mind. And he was saying that victory doesn't look like the ticker tape parade. The war is over. No more conflict. No more battle. Temptations, they're, they're done. They're gone. I've no, he was saying the victory looks like you, you, you take up your weaponry and you go to battle again, day after day after day, with the weapons that are divinely powerful. A high heart will deceive you. Second observation, why is pride like this? Well, pride is deceitful. It's also just, it's in competition with others and just kind of one ramification about pride is, listen, in the context of the church, pride destroys unity. And it does that for so many reasons. We could take a lot more time and talk through that. I'll just share a couple of thoughts. One insightful statement from Calvin. This is from his Institutes, which is republished in a little booklet called The Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life. He said, if the same talents which we admire in ourselves appear in others or even our betters, we depreciate and diminish them with the utmost malignity in order that we may not have to acknowledge the superiority of others. That stings. Because pride is naturally in competition with other, pride, other people's pride. It, it separates people. Like Proverbs 1, the man who separates himself, he's got a desire that he's seeking after, and so he separates himself from brethren separates and lays seeds to the health of a church. Because think about it like this. No one else is living for your glory, just you. So if you're about your glory, your self-protection, you're alone in that, and um, you will not be part of the unity of a Christ-submitted body so long as we're going about in pride. It's a potent, potent uh, unity destroyer. So unity suffers Wherever pride is involved, self-glory is a solitary pursuit. Look at Romans 12, 16. Romans 12, 16. Scripture often has unexpected contrasts, and I find one in Romans 12, 16. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. So thinking about pride, if we are exalting ourselves, no one else is going to do that. Be of the same mind means I've got to forsake pride. Because no one has me uh, in a sinful, self-glorying kind of way at, at heart. Be of the same mind toward one another and, and do not be haughty in mind. Here's the contrast to being don't be haughty in mind and be the same mind, but associate with the lonely, with the lowly. In other words, people just like you. Don't be haughty because 
You're among the lowly, so associate with the lowly and don't be wise in your own estimation. Almost like he's picking right up of Proverbs chapter 3. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know you're not haughty in mind when the haughty look down on you and you're well content to associate with the lowly, not feeling the burn of the haughty. God associates with the lowly. I'll close with um, this passage. We'll see if we've got some, some time for discussion. God associates with the lowly, and this is stunning. In Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, For though Yahweh is exalted, though he is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but he knows the haughty from afar. That's a stunning judgment. Pride is something none of us could say. I used to struggle with that. So that, guys, thanks for being here this morning, listening long. Any uh, thoughts, questions at this point? We could talk through it a little bit.